Hi, I'm Catherine Nichols, and I'm here with Elisa Gabbert today. This is Lit Century, where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. Elisa is a poet and essayist, and she writes a regular poetry column in the New York Times. Her most recent book is The Unreality of Memory from FSG Originals. Today, our year is 1917, uh, which is when T.S. Eliot published the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock in book form. The other poem that we're talking about in this episode is Andrew Marvell's To His Coy Mistress, which uh, may have been written in the 1650s and was not published until 1681, but solidly out of the 20th century, so sorry about that. Um, it's a poem that we know Eliot admired a lot and wrote about, and in some ways Prufrock seems to be in conversation with it. It starts, If We Had World Enough and Time, and it goes on to make an argument for why the coy mistress should sleep with the narrator quickly, because death is coming. Um, time, sex, and death, and the concept of doing things quickly, are also on J. Alfred Prufrock's mind. I hope that counts as a summary. <laughs> uh, we have a recording of a uh, recording of T.S. Eliot uh, reading some of the poems, so we can hear that before Elisa and I talk. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells. Streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. Oh, do not ask, what is it? Let us go and make our visit. So when did you first read this poem? I'm assuming that you have a long-term relationship with this poem. Ah, you know, so I sort of do. Um, I, I really strongly remember reading it and talking about it in class in college um, when I was a freshman in college and like some kind of, I had to take some kind of like general humanities class. It was a requirement at, at Rice where I went, where I went to college. And um, I, I do know it wasn't an English class, but there was a lot of just sort of like general reading and um I remember reading it in that class, but not really getting it or feeling any kind of particular personal relationship with it. It just, it didn't move me. Um, it wasn't until much later, actually. And this is one of the things that I think is so fascinating about this poem. I really didn't like get it as a poem until I was older, like at least late twenties, but maybe in my thirties, I feel like it was really in my thirties that I started like revisiting it a lot and really getting a lot out of it and just finding it so much more beautiful and also funny than I ever had yeah. um, the first time I read it. And, and I actually didn't really know because I wasn't paying that much attention in my college class, obviously that he wrote it so young. This blows my mind. It was like basically his first published poem. He wrote it yeah. in his early twenties and he had, um, published, you know, a few poems in like his college paper or college journal or something like that. Um, but it, it was his first professionally published poem, which is insane. And it's, it's amazing to me that he wrote something that feels to me like it really speaks 
to aging and like death anxiety when he was so young, because usually poets in their twenties are not writing about that yet. Well, I, I both see that. And then I also see a level of hesitance and lack of sexual confidence combined with desire that seems very youthful. Mm. So, Um, yeah, I was, I was wondering what you, what you think about the sort of standard, I feel like it's the kind of standard received interpretation of the poem that it's about like thwarted sexuality somehow or impotence, um, which I personally find myself a little resistant to. I mean, there's, there's certainly like desire and thwarted desire and and lust in the poem. And I I think it'll be interesting to talk about that in relation to the Marvel poem you mentioned. Um, But yeah, I don't know. To me, that's not like the important part of the poem. That is not the part that I connect to. No, but I think it's something that seems, even though he talks about baldness and growing old and a feeling of, as you said, like death anxiety, I'm like, there are balancing things that have that have the feeling that that there's some things that he's that he's observing and that he's trying maybe for the first time that he hasn't yet necessarily figured out who he is in relation to the people that he's among. Uh-huh. I don't have a lot of lines marked about why I think that. I have lines marked about why I think a lot of other things, though. So I uh-huh. like quote lines about that. But well, wait, well um, when you say he, this is kind of interesting because um, well, we talked about Plath a few more than a few several episodes back. Yes, um, and I talked about how. I think Daddy, for example, but other platforms as well um, in Ariel are really kind of more dramatic monologues than anything else. They're not um, like, I don't like she didn't think of them as like, oh, this is a confessional poem with like the speaker is very close to me. She thought of it as like, I'm creating this character and writing a dramatic monologue and this character's voice. And that's usually how proof rock, I mean, because you know, yeah, I, I it's not the love song of T.S. Eliot. No, no, but the he, I think it's like a standard <laughs> character. I think the he is, is proof rock, not Elliot. Yes, but I think yes. it's it's a character that has um, qualities of youthful uncertainty as well as some youthful enthusiasm. But I want to talk about the youthful enthusiasm for a minute because mm-hmm. um, I guess I read this as a poem about writing a poem. It's one way of reading it that I find fruitful anyway. You know, I, I don't want to say that this is like the be all and end all of reading this poem, but that the, um, you can hear me rustling my papers around. Um, <laughs> so, he, you know, he's talking about like uh, time for a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions. Um, and then he sort of has like this very long and gorgeous description of the evening that spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Um, and that he's sort of inviting someone who, in this interpretation, like we could think of as the reader, that he's showing somebody what he sees in his poetic language and how he's putting words to it. And then there's um, another description and the afternoon and the evening sleep so peacefully, smoothed by long fingers, asleep, tired, or it malingers which is another description of another sleeping evening. And then the asleep, tired, or it malingers, you could say that he's 
uncertain about his own judgment about what the evening is doing, or you could think that he's sort of grasping for the right word, you know? Uh-huh. The question of daring to disturb the universe, I think he has a sense the the person who is editing, there's a sense that the poem, if he is if he's talking about writing the poem, he's talking about something that is bigger than himself. So I think there's these phrases like um, to have squeezed the universe into a ball, which sounds like he's crumpling up a piece of paper. And there's when he has this frustration <laughs> that feels like a, a poetic frustration of editing. It's like impossible to say just what I mean. Um, and then that's echoing a, an earlier line where he's talking to somebody and he's saying, uh, if one settling a pillow by her head should say, that is not what I meant at all. That is not it at all. Uh, which is, of course, your Twitter bio. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> the I think that there's a lot of images that the poem that he's writing and revising is the universe. And that when he talks about, do I, disturb, do I dare disturb the universe? I think there's a sense that the relationship between editing a poem and making an action in the world are both potentially too weighty for somebody who's not Hamlet or Lazarus or one of these sort of sturdy ancient figures that he doesn't know that he personally is up to the job of writing something that would still exist after his death, or that he he can't necessarily choose which is the right way to describe the evening. He doesn't necessarily know which way the evening really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love I love that. I love reading it as a kind of um, ars poetica, and I can't remember who it is that said, you know, Essentially, you can read every poem as an Ars Poetica, but it really makes sense, I think, you know, in the context of his life where, um, you know, this was such an early poem and really so defining for the rest of his poetic career and just kind of modernism in general. Um, And I love like, like the way it starts to me, like, let us go then you and I when the evening is spread out against the sky, it feels so expansive. It has yeah. this feeling of like, um, like he's, you know, just like the showmaster and he's like drawing the curtains, but it feels to me like oh, this poem is going to allow a whole world or a whole life to enter into it. It feels like that capacious to me. And it has that like lovely pacing where um, there's something about like the size and length of this poem where it's always like shorter and yet young- longer than I remember. <laughs> Like, it's just long enough that I can't ever seem to hold all the parts in my mind. Um, But then because it feels so big, I'm always surprised that it's not like more pages when I'm flipping through it in a book. Um, It just feels sort of like life, like a lifetime's length to me. (laughs) Yeah. And we were talking about how it has these certain uh, certain lines that are so, so memorable and quotable so that you'll have them mm-hmm. in your mind. And then there's other parts where it's a little difficult to remember exactly what he did say. Yes. So that like, if you go back thinking about the ragged claws, it's like, yep, you're always going to remember the ragged claws. That's not going to be too difficult to bring to mind. But then you go back and then you spend some time in his description of the evening that, uh, sort of calls a a cat to mind that those aren't sections that you're necessarily going to feel like you have completely encompassed ever Mm -hmm. by memorizing them. Yeah. 
yeah, I, I, I always wonder like, why have I not memorized this poem when I love it so much, but I'm just not, I'm not really a natural memorizer. And so I just haven't. Um, but I think it, going back to what you said about how it being about writing a poem, I do feel like the proof rock character, um, it feels like this very sort of self-conscious intellectual figure persona. And um, I, I find that it, it, it feels to me like there's sort of like all these layers of irony that somehow like undo themselves. Like it, it, it feels very, you know, mannered and there's a pose and yet, um, you know, the emotion breaks through. It's not like you can read it as purely ironic and not, um, not an expression of genuine sentiment or um, fear or despair. Um, but I mean, I love like. What's an ironic part? Like just, uh, you know, just read a yeah. few lines. Or... Um, I mean, I, I hear it almost through all of it, but I mean, I, and I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker. And in short, <laughs> I was afraid. I, I love the, the way the stanzas often end on these little, um, like very simple phrases, like, and how should I begin? Or that is not it at all. This, those little commas. And in short, comma, I was afraid. I find that comma like so poignant and also hilarious yeah, um, yeah. because it's, I mean, it's, it's such a sort of, you know, like a, like a British um, understatement in a sense, like he's talking about being face-to-face with death. Um, and yeah, I, f- I find that it's also interesting when you consider like, that Elliot is from St. Louis. <laughs> another thing that I always sort of forget. And he like had not been in England for very long when he wrote this poem, but he already kind of has this, you know, what we think of as like a British sensibility. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. I don't think that you would find uh, streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent. That seems so London-like to me. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. think you find those in St. Louis. Yeah, and it, that's sort of another connection to to Plath. Actually, you know, she she went to England and just had so much like affinity with um, with the style, and she just adopted it and had a phony accent for the rest of her life, <laughs> as as he did. <laughs> um, so, one of the things that I was also thinking about this is how much it has in common with this. Uh, Andrew Marvell poem the, yes. um, to his coy mistress that um, there's this thing that I just read in uh, the Times Literary Supplement that's from 1921 that's uh, Eliot's essay about this poem and mm-hmm. I didn't end up sending it to you because I didn't think that it had quite what we needed to discuss in order to discuss these two poems beside each other. I'm trying to find that ball line you pointed out because that word the ball appears in both um to his coy mistress and proof rock to have squeezed the universe into a ball. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. The had we built world enough in time is how the to his coy mistress begins. And then this poem goes on to describe all of the ways that um, if he had eternity available to him, he would explore and enjoy his mistress, his girlfriend. And I think it's interesting how many times the Elliot repeats the time. And indeed there will be time. The, and, and indeed there will be time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the assurance that there is enough time, but what there isn't 
is the belief that if you explore something, you'll actually see it clearly, you'll understand it mm-hmm. and be able to enjoy it. Um, I think it, like uh, the, to this Chloe mistress, there's the a hundred years should go to praise thine eyes and on thy forehead gaze, 200 to adore each breast, but 30,000 to the rest, an age at least to every part and the last age should show your heart. That's a lot of confidence that he knows exactly <laughs> what he would find if he spent this much time looking at this woman and really examining her. And I think that it shows a distance <laughs> between that sentiment and proof rocks when he says, I have known the arms already, known them all, arms that are braceleted and white and bare, but in the lamplight downed with light brown hair with that little um, awkward exclamation point and closed parentheses. That <laughs> <laughs> um, he also has this sense that he's already examined things enough, but isn't quite an, able to enjoy them without feeling that they're not quite the right thing, that they're that they've shown themselves to be wrong somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it makes me think of the the Kafka line, you know, an infinite hope, but not for us. Yeah. Um, I don't think Elliot, well, what do you think? Do you think Elliot read Kafka? <laughs> well, that's a good question. I just don't know at all. I don't either. Um, but I mean, certainly, of course, he read, well, you know, he wrote an essay about this poem, but I didn't realize actually um, until you pointed out how directly it seems to be, you know, like a column response with that with that first line, had we but world enough in time. Um, yeah, I think that it's it's really quite directly in conversation with this mm-hmm. previous poem. Um, and I think that the number of other poems that he's also shouting out um, with like saying that he's not Hamlet, he's just some uh, attendant Lord that will do to swell a progress, start a scene or two. I, I think he has all of these uh, people that he's comparing himself against from ancient times and, or just the past at least, and finding himself wanting in the pursuit of eternity, mm-hmm. uh, in the pursuit of writing a poem that's eternal. That, that's my interpretation. I don't know if that's, if that's yeah. just what I think or if that's <laughs> supported by the text. No, well, that feels, um, I mean, by the text, yes, but also just sort of by Eliot's uh, kind of critical ideas, which were, he believed that, you know, you had to sort of like immerse yourself so much in poetry that, um, that, you know, sources kind of became internalized. And he thought that if you, if you read widely enough, um, that was the only way that you could create something truly new, which, you know, I, I've always kind of found to, to be the case, like, the more I read, the more I know, you know, what has already been done. And, and like, I'm, I'm so much more able to be aware of when I'm writing like, or, or in the past when I wrote something that was like, Oh, just a total cliche or, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, I think sometimes people who haven't read a lot, like sort of beginning writers, young students think, 
um, I'm going to be too easily influenced if I read too much. But actually what you don't realize is like when you're using cliches, because you haven't read enough to recognize your own cliches yet, you don't know how common the things that you think are. (laughs) Um, So so similarly, he thought like, you know, the more you read um, that, you know, the more likely you would be to produce something new. And that if you created something, you know, truly sort of novel, it would, um, it would actually sort of speak back to the past. And this is, this is like totally my kind of like time traveling shit when it comes to literature <laughs> that oh, like yeah. um, proof rock now, like you, you hear echoes of proof rock when you read to his coy mistress, not just the other way around. And, you know, ditto Baudelaire, you know, there's, a, there's those Baudelaire references and um, actually I'm not sure if there's anything direct in proof rock, but certainly in the wasteland. And then if you go back and read Baudelaire, you hear, you hear the wasteland, you know, it's like, it, it absolutely goes both ways. It's like, time is not, um, time has no arrow. Time has no arrow. If you're using illusions properly. I really agree. Cause I think that after reading all of his anxiety about eternity specifically and death, I went back and I was reading it to his core mistress with that in mind. I'm trying to think, is there, is there like a, a way that he's also doing the same thing. I don't think that that it's a Ars Poetica, as you were saying, mm-hmm. uh, at least directly. But the final image of To His Coy Mistress is, let us roll all our strength and all our sweetness up into one ball and tear our pleasures with rough strife through the iron gates of, grates, sorry, iron grates of life. Thus, though we cannot make our son stand still, yet we will make him run. That sounds like giving birth to me. Right. Does that sound to you? I mean, it sounds like the the rough strife through the iron grates of life and the ball sound to me at least. Oh, and son, a pun. (laughs) Are you you reading that as a pun? Oh, yeah. That's funny. Like how love defies time and death. True. Yes. Just via, via our genetic material. That is absolutely true. I find that that all and ball (laughs) couplet. That's a very funny rhyme to me. Oh, yeah. Let's roll all our strength and all our sweetness up into one ball. Yeah. Um, Coco the gorilla had a little kitten that she named All Ball. She loved rhymes. I had forgotten that. I knew that fact (laughs) so well when I was a kid. (laughs) (laughs) The tragic story of Coco and All Ball. I think the kitten ran into the street or something. Something just that if you read about it, you'll just never stop crying. (laughs) <laughs> no I, I I don't even know how to respond because it's like it's so upsetting to think about I had a picture book it was photos like oh, those photo picture books of, of yeah. Coco and All Ball oh. um, I guess that's what all balls do <laughs> sorry I'll cut that <laughs> no you can't <laughs> but so the okay I I also underlined in the Koi Mistress that there's a sense that this is also a poem about going for a walk. Mm-hmm. Um, it starts with, we would sit down and think which way to walk. And then um, later it's like, and uh, at my back, I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near and yonder all before us lie deserts of vast eternity. It, it has the feeling to me, at least that he's describing a landscape that he's walking through. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but then it has this feeling of passionate certainty, um, 
that and while thy willing soul transpires at every pore with instant fires. Um, it is kind of funny how all the rhymes are side by side like that. And it is very cute. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Especially the ones where either they make you want to say like Virginia tie, <laughs> you know, then worm um, shall try that long preserved Virginia tie. Um, yeah. Um, but that exact sense of certainty is, is the thing that Elliot is reversing. And I think that there's an urge to say that that lack of certainty is modern, but I don't know if that's true. Do you think that it's like a modern lack of certainty or do you think that it's just a lack of certainty that's personal to the poem? Hmm. Let me search my notes really quick. I read something interesting on this. Um, and it was about proof rock being um, actually a shockingly American poem. Um, oh yeah, I found, so I found this article. This was in the New York Times um, in the late '90s by um, a scholar named Nicholas Jenkins. Who I'm not familiar with. Have you heard of Nicholas Jenkins? No. Sorry. Um, whoever you are. <laughs> it was very good. Um, he, he said that in Eliot's early poems, or his poems are like a fragile tattered web of language stretched over a void. And the filaments of that web are often spun from the works of other writers. I thought that was very good. Yeah, that um, is- he spoke of the delicate moroseness and their attention to nerves, you know, that sort of um, early as... going to mention <laughs> Yeah, the early 20th century. Yeah, that that like my um that's a line in the wasteland that I always think of too. You know, that that sequence in the wasteland where my nerves are bad. Um, do you know what I'm talking about? I don't. I mean, if you want to take a second to pull it up, that's fine. Yeah, let me just oh yeah, there's just a little dialogue. Um, I'm sure you've heard it. I, if you if you ever listen to the Elliot recording of a reading the wasteland, it's great. My nerves are bad tonight. Yes, bad. Stay with me. Speak to me. Why do you never speak? Speak. What are you thinking of? What thinking? What? I never know what you are thinking. Think. Um, but yeah, my nerves are bad. Some, there's been times during the pandemic, especially, that I felt that was the only way to just sort of describe my mental and physical state. Like that's the phrase that came to mind. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because I felt like frayed in this way that was right on the edge between something going on in my brain and something going on in my body. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think Elliot had some some kind of one of one of those like kind of quote unquote hysterical hysterical conditions. Yeah. Um, what he he had a very specific word for it, like a boulia or something. What what was it? Um, oh, abouli, lack of will. <laughs> oh wow. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the idea in this article, the reason that he said it was American is because. Um, America was thought to be sort of like, you know, if, if um, civilization was like collapsing everywhere, they, that's really where it was like most happening. The phrase he used was it, it had reached its most advanced and desperate stage in America. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, 
the your nerves quote i i wanted to to talk about the line um but as if a magic lantern threw the nerves and patterns on a screen would it have been worthwhile uh if one settling a, a pillow or throwing off a shawl and turning toward the window should say that is not it at all that is not what i meant at all uh the idea that um you could learn that much about nerves that you could um have like a scientific whatever x-ray or drawing or something like that uh, overhead projectors and it would uh-huh. still tell you absolutely nothing useful whatsoever about the human condition or what people are like or how to speak to other people or how to mean what you mean um right. it just it's makes like, me what is what is it like to be a bat this, <laughs> yes. uh, we're probably going to end up making a reference to that in every single episode <laughs> <laughs> that that is the overwhelming question Catherine. <laughs> We just closed our our previous episode. <laughs> I, I did. I did want to no, ask actually, you. Oh, oh well, you go ahead. I just wanted to to say that the um, it just seems like the most advanced and desperate is right there. Mm-hmm. The idea of advancement and desperation um, being together. But anyway, you were going to say. I was going to ask. What how, what is your interpretation of the overwhelming question? Do you want me to read the line? Yeah, yeah. Let, I mean, I, um, I could find it. He repeats it a couple of times. Pages on the floor here. Oh, it comes right after the ball. Um, and would it have been worth it after all? After the cups, the marmalade, the tea, among the porcelain, among some talk of you and me, would it have been worthwhile to have bitten off the matter with a smile, to have squeezed the universe into a ball, to roll it towards some overwhelming question? Which is, you know, in the first um, in the first stanza, a pre-echo. <laughs> um, Streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. Oh, do not ask. What is it? But I'm asking you, what is it? I'm happy with it being a sense of urgency and desperation that you can feel inside your body to communicate and to be with the world and other people. Mm -hmm. But I also could imagine it being the force inside the world that moves somebody to write a poem. The thing that the poem is supposed to be an answer to, which I also think is part of the mermaid's singing. Yes. Yes. I totally agree. Yeah. If you, if you read too much or the wrong um, critical response to this poem, you'll, you'll start to find people saying that it's like, Oh, well, proof rock was, you know, wanted to ask some a whore to have sex with him or something like that. Like they try to make it so specific mm-hmm. like, and that like, just that makes me stabby because I, I, I'm with you. I, I, to me, the, the overwhelming question is um, such a wonderful. So I'm thinking of um, Charles Wright in his Paris review interview called something a, a, a stand in for a catch all. And I've been I've been thinking a lot about Charles Wright lately and how he says that all his poems are about the same thing, which is like um, language and landscape and the idea of God, quote unquote, the idea of God, just like the sort of spiritual mystery and the big questions about the void and death and 
um, what is it like to die and what happens in the beyond, if anything. Um, and to me, yes, like that, like all good poetry has these like encounters with the void and the phrase overwhelming question is like a really good, um, it's just a, a really good like turn of phrase for like that. That's the encounter with the void that you're writing poetry for to get closer to it. You know, like when you're reading Velka, he's constantly approaching the void. Yeah. I I think the, the human voices waking us and we drown that to me is like the feeling of interruption that ends the feeling of the overwhelming question, like where you feel like you have something and you almost understand it. And then uh, somebody interrupts you or I don't know, something happens and you lose it and you lose Uh that feeling of connection with the void. I don't think that the drowning is the void in this interpretation, at least. I think it's, the loss of the ability to hear the mermaid singing for a second. Like you can just hear it and then it's gone when something happens that, um, that takes it away from you. Mm. Yeah. I do not think that they will sing to me. I find that line very sad. Somebody, somebody told me, I think Dana Levin told me on Twitter, but I can't remember who she heard it from that. Um, the best, the best lines in poetry are mostly one-syllable words. <laughs> Interesting. I find that to be often very true. I do not think that they will sing to me. So um, back to the mixture of extremely memorable and remarkably unmemorable lines, the I do not think that they will sing to me is one that I certainly remembered since I first read it in high school in my 11th grade English class. Uh, but then I completely forgot that there's this other stanza where he describes the mermaids. Uh-huh. I was uh, shocked, honestly, that that existed when I just reread it. Right, the now. one right, the one right after it. Yeah, I've seen that- him riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves blown back. When the wind blows, the water white and black. So that and is my. That's my favorite it. stanza in the whole poem. It's my favorite, oh. and you know what? I. It's partly because it seems impossible to memorize, like the way that the language twists, um, like it's even hard to read, you know, it's almost riddle-like. I just had difficulty reading it. You could probably hear it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's, I I always think like, I've read it that particular stanza so many times, like how could I possibly not have memorized it? But um, I feel like I always have to look at it. I always think I'm getting it wrong. Um, But yeah, I, I find it just so like, just breathtakingly gorgeous. I am so glad to hear you say that because I found it breathtakingly gorgeous and almost invisible as I was reading it. Like I I could feel it slipping away from me. I could feel that I was already forgetting it even as I was reading it compared to <sighs> compared like, to like dream language. It's so it's such a strange magical trick. And all the lines around it. The we've lingered in the chambers of the sea and I do not think they will sing to me. Those are such just brass band memorable lines. Right, right. They they just have that like bam clarity. Yeah. Um yeah. And so they're they're almost like you know the, the setting for the jewel of that mysteriously unmemorizable stanza. Yeah. Yeah. Um so one of the things that I can't find evidence for, but I believe about this poem 
is that one of the questions of it is whether the modern world itself is possible to uh, be the subject of eternal poetry. Hmm. I don't know if that's actually in the poem or if it's just something I believe about it. Like I can't find a line that I could say, this is the line that makes me think that this is one of the questions that he's asking. It's almost in the repetition of the idea of Michelangelo and Dante and all of these other figures that he's sort of calling on, like, you know, like the muses in uh, epic poetry, he's sort of asking them to, to oversee his, um, his endeavor in writing this poem. Uh And then what he's actually talking about is a very modern set of habits and landscape. And it's, nerves on a screen and Mm -hmm. cups and marmalade and tea. Yeah. I don't know if there's actually a contrast there or not. I don't know if I only think that because I was presented with this poem as like the beginning of this certain strand of modern poetry. Right. I mean, it's, yeah, those things are always, you know, impossible to, it's impossible to read the poem imagining, um, you know, that it wasn't important if you've already been told all your life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's important. Um, yeah. I mean, sometimes I, I see this in complete continuity with poetry that came before it. <laughs> yeah. Before we close up our proof rock episode, I want to include two tweets that uh, Sandy wrote the other day. She wrote, an own voices version of the love song of J. Alfred Proofrock written by an actual mediocre person. Then, um, I mean, we know those mermaids were singing to T.S. Eliot like it was their job, which I think is probably the conclusion that Elisa and I came to also. Thank you, Sandy and Elisa, and thank you to Adam Bear for our music. Thank you to everyone at Literary Hub for hosting us. If you'd like to write to us, we're at Lit Century Pod on Twitter and at litcenturypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, and goodbye till next week. Bye.